Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Pence Politics, Mr. Watson. I am your host, Christian Watson. It's great to be with you guys here today. Now, if I seem a little bit tired, it is because I am. I am mentally exhausted, my friends. This is going to be a different kind of show today. Uh, we, we'll have some news woven into here. We're going to talk a little bit about how, about how Lindsey Graham uh, kind of embodies the archetypical, the archetypal inconsistent political man, sort of political creature. Uh, and how that mentality extends beyond Lindsey Graham, of course, and goes to other politicians. Because this is not just about Lindsey Graham. And, and the problem with modern-day politics is that we always get bogged down in attending to personalities over principles, so much that we actually lose the principles that we're trying to understand. We actually lose, lose principles that we're trying to analyze and, and deduce from. We lose the principles and we get bogged down in the mundane minutiae, the crude matter, the stuff of reality. So let's try to escape the stuff of reality and get to the principles that govern reality, our political realities and other iterations of reality, the broad, mega, meta reality that we all exist in. But what I'm going to talk to you guys mostly about today is that the reason I'm so exhausted and the reason I'm so tired is because just a few hours ago, last night, from 1 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I had one of the most grueling, perplexing, upsetting, maddening conversations that I have ever had in my very short career, my very short budding, fledgling career as an aspiring public intellectual, bar none. Bar none. And I'll explain to you what I mean. So, <laughs> and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about how to deal with a situation like this if, you, if it ever arises in your life. Because I think I was dealing with a bunch of sophists. I do. I, do, I genuinely do. And so I'm going to teach you how to deal with some sophists. And I'm going to teach you how to protect yourself intellectually. Because you have to have both a physical defense system and a spiritual defense system. And if your spiritual defenses are down, how in the world are you going to protect the whole of your being? You can have a shield, but if the shield is only deflecting what comes in front of you, what is behind you, below you, beside you, beneath you, all of that can still affect you. But if you have a spiritual defense system, an intellectual defense system, all that stuff kind of gets absorbed in the hedge of enlightenment that you are shrouded in. So we'll talk about that and more on this episode today of Pence Politics with Mr. Watson. So again, happy, happy Monday, guys. I know that it's not really common to hear someone say happy Monday, but happy Monday. Look, seriously, every day you wake up to see the morning light is a good day. There are so many people on this earth that not get the chance that you and I got to see reality in all of its glory, to to experience God's creation in all of its magnificence, to connect with the Logos, to connect with their family, to connect with... There are so many people that missed these opportunities, my friends. And you are one of the many people, one of the many hundreds of millions of billions of people who arose today. To make their stake, their claim in this world. Life is a gift, friends. Even if it feels hurtful sometimes, even if it feels rough sometimes, life is a gift. It is a gift from whoever you want to say it's a gift from, but it is a gift. You need to use that gift and take forth that gift 
to go to Grand Horizons, to go to the mountaintop, to go to the peak. You can see the peak, but until you've been on the peak, you don't know anything. I'm still trying to get to the peak, of course. <laughs> and one day, I'm sure I will. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at the foot of the mountain right now, so to speak. <laughs> so I am trying, I'm rapidly trying to expand the Pence Politics brand. And speaking of a brand, if you haven't seen, yesterday on Sunday, February 7th, I did a phenomenal interview with a, 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 a renegade in Hollywood called Jeremy Ivey. He is a phenomenal guy. Um, he is a brilliant guy. He is an independent filmmaker who is basically challenging the pretension of the big-time Hollywood oligopolies. I think they can dictate um, things to us in a narrative fashion. I think they can dictate certain principles as truth rather than as subjective whims. And he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to create my own thing. I'm going to create my own films. I'm going to get these libertarian, conservative ideas into the public space. I'm going to get them there, and they will be heard by many. That is virtuous action. That is resilient action. That is taking truth and going to power and slapping power right in the face. That is what we need more of these days, my friends. I promise you. And so I encourage you, look up the interview with me and Jeremy Ivey. Jeremy Ivey is a wonderful guy. I intend to have him back. I intend, I'm going to do a series on this channel about conservatives in Hollywood. Conservatives in Hollywood. I'm going to try to interview some famous conservatives. Right now, Tim Allen's on my bucket list. Roseanne Barr, potentially. I've already gotten Scott Baio, who is also phenomenal. So we're going to keep trying to get this, keep this ball rolling, because it's very important for us to have alternative voices who are willing to defy the orthodoxy in pursuit of the truth. But anyway, I'm trying to constantly expand my brand. <clears throat> and a part of expanding one's brand includes going to different platforms and different horizons. So for a very long while, I have been trying my very best to analyze the Christian Watson brand and see where it could best fit. Does it best fit on on uh, on Instagram? Does it best fit on uh, uh, Rumble does it best fit on Gab? No, does not best fit on Gab. By the way, <laughs> uh, does it best fit on uh, on TikTok? TikTok. Because the thing about TikTok is anyone can go incredibly viral and get incredibly famous and get incredibly well noticed in a very short duration of time, exponentially. That's how the app works. In fact, having a lot of TikTok followers is one of the many reasons I think why um, this the rise of the influencer is just exponential in our society. Because when you have a lot of followers, and you have a lot of people looking at your stuff, little bite-sized pieces, they tend to form a connection with you. This is, this is true of anything. It's true of what I do, although I don't really make bite-sized content. It's true of what James Charles does. It's true of what Kim Kardashian does. It's true of what Terrence K. Williams does. It's true of what Candace Owens does. When you are able to get yourself out there on a platform, especially one of high exposure, and you are able to say something witty and snappy, people tend to gravitate to you. So I was looking at TikTok very closely because I want to grow this channel exponentially. Although I began to realize the pipeline between TikTok followers and YouTube followers, if you have both platforms, is clogged up. You don't get a lot of feedback between those two, and that's a shame. There are folks with millions of followers on TikTok who have like 14,000 subscribers on YouTube. That doesn't seem very sustainable to me. That seems actually quite, that's actually quite pathetic. It kind of speaks to, the, to a question of inauthenticity within the TikTok algorithm. It speaks to a lot of things that I think are quite concerning if you're going to try to build a follow. 
But needless to say, there are people who make their entire careers off of TikTok. So I said, okay, Mr. Watson, you can go on a TikTok. You can say some cool things. You can do some cool things. Maybe you can be snappy and witty. Maybe you can go there and you can help the, the kids there, um, you know, work on their reasoning better, work on their philosophy better. Maybe you can go there and be a role model for these guys. So to test this hypothesis out, at 1 a.m. last night, I was invited onto a Zoom call with a collection, a host of TikTok talk personalities. I will not say who. Actually, to be frank with you, I don't know who these people are. I have a vague understanding of who they even are. All I know is that there are a bunch of people around my age, 20 or younger, who are on TikTok and who do debates on TikTok. And there is this entire genre of debating and intellectual discussion um, that I like to phrase the YouTube or the internet, internet intellectual. Which is lower than an actual intellectual, because actual intellectuals, as Glenn Lowry brilliantly said in a monologue with uh, Glenn Lowry very recently, no, uh, uh, John McCorder very recently, he said, if you want to be an intellectual, you have to read the great books and write some of your own. You have to go out there and you have to put in the work. You have to you have to show depth, breadth. You have to show uh, erudition. That's why I like that word, erudition. This is the great Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Lowry, one of the best economist, one of the most brilliant minds in the sort of IDW area, talking about race and social justice stuff. Brilliant guy. And I agree with that. You know, I'm trying to become a public intellectual, and although I'm not going to be an academic, I am trying to go there through the route of videos, through the route of commentary, eventually writing a book, eventually you know, have my own media company. I'm, I'm trying. Um, but there's a right. There has to be a level of erudition. The internet intellectual lacks a level of erudition. What the internet internet intellectual has is simply approbation of basic facts and basic things that can make themselves sound impressive. This is why I don't really do debates on YouTube. If I feel if I see if I can discern the reason that someone on YouTube is brilliant and actually has an understanding of these concepts beyond that of the station of an internet intellectual, guess what? Christian Watson will go in and Christian Watson will debate them. Endernax, a guy named Endernax, um, who has become close, slowly becoming one of my one of my closest one of my close friends. Slowly, uh, I think we had a debate about libertarianism and Christian democracy. It went well. He's not uh he's he's not uh lacking the he's not lacking any erudition. He's not uh he doesn't have vain approbation of facts. But my concern with these TikTok folks is that they had the vain approbation of facts. And so I went to this Zoom call, and at first, I'm sitting there, and they're shouting out racial slurs. Or some of them are, at least. Not all of them, but some of them are. A majority of them are saying, okay, guys, stop it. This is not cool. You're scaring this new guy. But they're shouting out racial slurs. And the N-word and things like that. I'm like, what, 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 what have I just walked into? So from that moment on, I, I underestimated the just the bare extent of all this stuff. I underestimated just how everything here kind of flows. I underestimated it all. I, I'm like, what in the world is going on, Mr. Watson? My lord. <laughs> My god. So I was like, okay, these are just a bunch of kids that think they know something. And, I'll, and we'll just have a discussion. And, I'll, and it'll be like 20 minutes long. And I'll just go to sleep because I have class at 10 a.m. Boy, was I wrong. So they had me explain who I was, and 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 just to just to to emphasize, this was supposed to be a classical liberal libertarian leaning group on TikTok. This was supposed to be a group that would be friendly to my beliefs. 
So they had me explain who I was. And they began, uh, they immediately began after I was done using all this weird jargon that even me as a philosophy student, I had I had either heard of and had a peripheral understanding of or I had no understanding whatsoever. And when they did that, I immediately could detect, oh, hell, it's this kind of person. It's this kind of group. Whenever someone uses weird jargon, instead of being as clear as possible in an argument, watch out. Red flag number one. Because it tells you something. It conveys to you that they are more interested in hearing themselves speak and building up their own ego rather than seeking the truth. What did Heraclitus say? He was a brilliant pre-Socratic philosopher. I don't agree with all of Heraclitus' stuff. Heraclitus believed that everything was in flux together and that um, things are not... uh, are not defined by single characteristics, they're defined by a bunch of circumstantial stuff. I don't believe in that stuff. That's not my thing. But I think Heraclitus had a good understanding of truth. He had a good understanding of ontology. So uh, ontology is related to the human and, and epistemology as well. So Heraclitus said, and I'm quoting right now from the fragments, having hearkened not to me, But to the word, the logos, it is wise to agree that all things are one. And now this is the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Heraclitus stresses that the message is not his own invention, but a timeless truth available to any who attend the way the world itself is. This is Heraclitus now. Although the word is common, he warns, the many live as if they had a private understanding. That's the problem with the sophists that I debated last night. They had a private understanding. So what do I mean? They began using a lot of jargon that I had no idea about. I began explaining, I said, okay, guys, what do you mean by this? And so one of them used a jargon, uh, used a word called a cognitivist. For those of you who are not familiar, a cognitivist is essentially... Someone who thinks the world can be apprehended through the senses, through sense experience, through all that kind of stuff. And all I said was that, you know, dude, it would have been just as valid if you had asked me, Christian, how do you think the world can be apprehended? How do, where do you think knowledge comes from? What method do we use to obtain knowledge? I would have said, well, I believe that this is, this is an objective world. There is an objective way to obtain knowledge. I think that empiricism is, is the cornerstone of that metric. And I said that eventually. And they pressed me. This one guy said, okay, so you think you can reduce moral principles to sense experience or to, 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 yeah, sense experience. And I thought to myself, what? So if I say that I know this pen exists because I can, I can both see this pen and I can both apprehend this pen. Am I reducing the principle of writing to sense experience, to uh, uh, to crude materials, to crude matter? Because their thing was okay. You can't necessarily give me a definition of hot or hotness because hot or hotness is undefinable. It all has to do with how we feel about things. So if I put my hand on a stove, 
I may feel a sensation there, a burning sensation, but it would be reductive. It would be taking the principle and completely and utterly whittling it down and destroying it to say that that is the whole of the principle. But what I said is that, okay, no, no, no. The, what you feel on your hand is not the whole of the principle, but it's an interaction with the principle. It's a good idea of the principle, but obviously the principle has meaning beyond that one moment. Now, if you're a pragmatist, it does not, but I think it does. And we were basically eventually saying the same thing, and they kept on changing the words, changing the arguments to make themselves seem smarter and to make me feel lesser. Looking back on it, I would have asked them to define what the hell do you mean by moral principles and how the hell is hotness a moral principle? Because what they do is they try, they, they say these things in conjunction to make themselves seem erudite and smart. But when you actually begin to press them on these issues, these sophists, these pretenders, and I don't want to say that they're all pretenders, but I felt as if they were they were being sophistical towards me. They what they do is they they, they just keep pressing, they just keep going, they just keep poking at you until they can satisfy their ego. That was the first strike for me. I'm like, okay, this is obviously not a friendly conversation anymore. This is obviously a a, a mendacious interrogation. A mendacious interrogation. At that point, I could have easily terminated the Zoom call. I did not. Maybe part of me likes masochism, I don't know. (laughs) But... I kept listening to these people because I had a fear that if I ran away, I would be considered as a wuss or a less valid intellectual than if I had stayed. And so let me bestow this upon all of you here. It is okay to leave a conversation. You are not obligated to any conversation. They are not obligated to have your attention, to have your being there. It's okay to leave a conversation if it no longer is going to be about producing the truth and if it is simply about winning. Winning. What does Ben Shapiro say? Ben Shapiro says, this is actually a good tip, that if you don't know something, admit that you don't know it, you're not an oracle, and that's okay. Because again, if it's about finding the truth, then that process of discovery will help you. The problem is, these guys knew tactics. They didn't know principles. They knew tactics. I used to be this kind of person, too. I used to go on the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and just read that and think that I knew everything. But secondary literature exists for a reason. Secondary literature exists because it, it simply exists to help hone our perceptions of certain works. So, for example... I'm reading right now the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. It took me, let me just give you guys an example. You can see on the screen, if you're watching on YouTube. These are my notes in the first few pages. Terrible handwriting, I know, but follow me here. 
These are my notes in the first few pages. If I would have gone to a secondary source to get this information, it's obvious what would have happened. What would have happened is I would have missed some of the key details he was talking about. Secondary sources only give me a vague understanding of an issue. And those are just the first five pages. I have plenty of more notes scattered throughout this book. But sometimes people do things like this so they can win. It's about winning arguments. And so, Christian, how would you handle their pretension? Well, let's keep going on the story. So after this sort of debate about sense experience happened, they began questioning me. I mentioned how I think that human beings are special because we have we because we have intrinsic value, and that intrinsic value is an exercise through our, our faculty of rationality. And there's a distinctive quality in late in within our faculty of rationality that distinct differentiates us between the animals, between the fish, between things like that. And they said to me, "Well, Mister Watson, um, what about human distinctiveness makes us special? What if other animals had our same distinctiveness? Would they be special?" Oh, Mister Watson, what is this God business? Because I was mentioning how God is a massive part of the system for me. What is this God business, Mister Watson? What the hell is going on with this God business? I mean, why does God create animals with certain things and humans with certain things? Are you sure this is a, a your premises are 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 sound? They're falling apart, Mister Watson. They're falling apart. I hear that voice over and over in my head as I'm making this podcast, and it drives me nuts. Not because I got beat. No, everyone's premises should be up for challenge. Everyone's premises, everyone's argument should be up for a challenge, my goodness. But where is the challenge coming from? And is the challenge operating in honesty or is it operating in deconstruction? If you're just trying to deconstruct something, you're essentially doing what PhD students should have to have done when they're getting their doctoral thesis analyzed. But you're doing it to make them better. I had no sense that this was to make my arguments better. It was to make theirs seem infallible. And again, this is the thing with ego-driven people. This is the thing with ego-driven people. They will try to tear you down so they can make themselves and their brand seem better than yours. And for a good majority of the night after that, I was like, Mr. Watson, you're a fraud. Mr. Watson, you don't have any business being up here talking about Aristotle, talking about uh, Roswell Land, talking about uh, all these great thinkers, talking about Isabel Patterson, going in here talking from a conservative libertarian viewpoint about current events. Who are you, man? These kids just smoked you. But I realize now it's not about those kids. It's not about them. It's about my own intellectual development. It's about where I was when I was 14 years old to where I am right now when I'm age 20. This is a principle that I'm struggling with, but I'm going to get it eventually and you'll get it eventually. Stop weighing your progress. Stop weighing your intelligence against other people. So when we come back from the break, we will talk about the other arguments they brought up and how eventually I just said, you know what, I'm leaving. We'll discuss all that and more on uh, on this episode of Pins Pause with Mr. Watson. If you guys could please, look, I want to bring more good content to you, so please donate, follow, subscribe, whatever you can to this podcast. I will see you on the other side of this break.
Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to Pence Podcast, Mr. Watson. So, as I was mentioning before the break came in, they began pressing me, these people, these TikTok people, began pressing me about in my, my theory of intrinsic value. Because I do believe that every human being, every human life has value, 100%. I think this value comes from an understanding of natural law and understanding of some of the faculties that distinguish human beings. They were just hammering me and questioning me. And getting the, the hammering and the question was not the problem. It was how they were doing it. They were not doing it in a way, uh, a sort of mentor-like way, or in a way to get to the truth. It, they were doing it in a manner in which, completely and utterly, was about competition. They accused me when I asked questions of obfuscating things. I'm sorry, but when you ask a question, you don't make a clear claim, but you ask a question, not a loaded question, not a leading question, but if you ask a regular question, that's not obfuscation. Obfuscation is when I try to intentionally make something more difficult to understand in a deceitful or deceptive way to further a particular aim. That's obfuscation. But they can't, they can't be throwing around these words. And at this point, there was like seven of these people on the call. Now, they would all take like one or two of the three of them would take turns getting on to me. There's like seven of these people on the call. And they would all just throw this crap at me. So at this point, I'm two, we're two hours in. And I'm thinking, Christian, you need to give up this YouTube stuff. You need to give up this public intellectual stuff. You don't have the goods, man. What the hell? These kids are literally... I have debated people with master's degrees. I have debated PhDs. I have debated, I have debated uh, professionals. And I did much better with them than I did in this instance. Years better. Folks who have written entire books about these subjects, I've debated them. I've done years better. So at that's, this point, I'm like, you know, dude, you need, to, you need to delete the channel. You need to get rid of the channel, man. You're a fraud. These kids have exposed you. You're a fraud, dude. You're an absolute fraud. But something kept saying, no, Christian. This is the... It was like an angel and the devil situation. The devil was like, yeah, Christian, you're like, you're like a fraud, man. The angel was like, uh, Christian, I don't know about that sentiment. Mr. Watson, I mean, this is the... You haven't debated someone in a while, or at least you haven't been ganged up on... In a while, there was one time I did a pornography debate uh, with friends in real life where I was ganged up on by three of them, and I, I think I did well. Um, I'd never been ganged up on by seven people, much less seven people who have a have a, a, a semi-competent understanding of philosophy. I say semi because when I actually asked questions, they kind of retreated. They had they basically have a so what 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 happens? This is what Socrates encountered in the Protagoras and and, and in the the Gorgias. What happens with the sophists is that they have a basic understanding of philosophy. Um, they have enough of an understanding to make arguments that seem coherent. But when you press them on the fundamentals, they completely and utterly miss out. So, for example, after they hit me on the truth, uh, uh, on the values and tragic thing, we had a conversation about the uh, non-aggression principle. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the non-aggression principle is simply a libertarian maxim that says, look, you don't have the right to aggress against me or my property without just cause. You don't have the right to commit any involuntary or coercive actions against me or my property. It essentially is the linchpin of a lot of libertarian ethical thought. 
And really, I think it's one of the more basic precepts of American politics. You leave me alone, and I leave you alone. The government exists to are instituted among men to protect the rights given to me, natural rights. The non-aggression principle comes from this idea of natural rights, that we have rights that come from an external source of, from us, and that constitute our being, and that enable us to live morally responsibly, and are enforced and, uh, and codified in the natural law. That's, that's the fundamentals of libertarianism. The problem with a, with a sophist is they'll take part of the fundamentals or a result of the fundamentals. Like they'll say, okay, we're going to ignore natural rights. We're going to ignore natural law. We're going to treat the non-aggression principle as if it's in a vacuum. And in that vacuum, we're going to make assertions about it that could only be tenable if they are universally true. So, for example, we had a debate. This is actually, there was a, a period midway into the call where the debate was, um, where, where things had calmed down. They were actually being much nicer to me. They were they were not trying to bust me over the head with, you know, facts and logic. They were not trying to, because oh, at this point, I'm already feeling terrible about myself. I'm already feeling like, you know, Christian, this is not for you, dude. Go become a lawyer or something, or go do some other menial job. This is not for you. I was, I was already feeling like crap, like utter, you know what. Now, again, this is like 3 a.m. And 3 a.m. Can, can influence your mood. But still, I'm already, I'm already feeling like crap. And so these guys say to me, um, they say, and I, and I explain what I think about Trump to them, and they, they listen. They're actually quite docile when I explain to them some political things. I explain my opinion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So they're actually quite docile when I do these things. So like, they're just listening. They're not trying to argue with me. They're listening. Which showed to me something. These guys don't know as much as they think they do. My pen just went away. Excuse me. These guys don't know as much as they think they do. They will even admit, oh, that conflict that you're talking about, I don't really care about. I don't really know about it. Why not? It encompasses a lot of the principles that you talk about. Well, well, what? Well, what? For a sophist. Knowledge is advantageous. Knowledge is advantageous for sophists. For sophists, knowledge is strategic. So if knowing what a cognitivist is helps them win an argument, but they're never pressed on real-world issues like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, They'll exclude those issues and study the absolute theory and get mixed up in that stuff. They'll get bound to a prison of false conceit. They'll get bound to a prison of theoretical trappings. I think, look, I'm a theorist. I like theory a lot. But I told them, and this is actually funny, I said, look, there's a point where theory has to meet reality, where the abstract realm has to meet the material realm. And one of them told me, oh, Christian, are you a Platonist? Which is basically someone who likes Plato. A Pla I'm like, what? Hold on. So because I say that you have to have your ideas have application in the real world, I like Plato now? It's not about knowledge with these people. 
It's about opinion. Aristotle made the distinction between knowledge and opinion. This is a major motif about ancient Greek philosophy. It's not about knowledge, my friends, with these sophists. It's about opinion. It's about putting you in a predefined box so they can easily define you and they can win their little game. It is not about actually trying to understand the concepts and the foundations of principles. How do I know this? Let's backtrack. So, we get into a conversation about the non-aggression principle. And the non-aggression principle, we agree on. We don't agree on means. We don't agree on means. So if we agree that aggression is wrong always, we have to eventually figure out how to enforce that maximum reality. This is the problem. I said, okay, let's do this by proportionality because not all aggression is equal. Different levels of aggression deserve different responses. So they uh, they created this absurd hypothetical in which they said, okay, Christian, how about this? Okay, what about this, Mr. Watson? Let's say in this hypothetical, someone changed themselves up to a tree in your backyard. And the only way to remove them is by killing them, by taking their life. How would your met met metric answer that? Then they pose their own metric, the gentlest means metric, which says, okay, I can do whatever is ge the gentlest means to get someone off of my property. So if that means I need to kill them, it would be legal under the non-aggression maxim. I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to, I don't like impossible hypotheticals. They're essentially boxing my, uh, they're essentially trying to eliminate any possibility my argument would have of succeeding with one dominating variable, which is a situation which never arises in reality. You will never be presented with a situation in reality. Never, 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 where your only choice to get someone off of your property who is there passively, not who is there not who is there aggressively trying to take your stuff, who is there passively is to kill them. There are a million ways proportionate to their actions to get them off their property. But these guys use a hypothetical to try to beat me up. Man. So we have a long debate about this. And at this point, several of them are just coming in and just attacking me, just, just, just bludgeoning me. Several of them are boom, boom, boom. And I'm just thinking to myself, look, dude, at this point, this is what Christian was thinking last night. The Christian right now is not what he was thinking last night. Look, at this point, dude, you're, they've exposed you as a kind of a fraud. Um, they've, they've shown the folly of, the folly of your arguments. Um, you just need to give up and let these guys win. That's what Christian right then was thinking about. <laughs> Christian now is like, wow. We could have actually reached some sort of ethical conclusions if they hadn't been so motivated by wanting to win. We could have reached the conclusion that, hey, maybe there are some circumstances that require us to have contextual applications of enforcement mechanisms, of corrective mechanisms. Maybe... In some instances, the gentlest means is the best way of, of solving ethical quandaries. And in others, proportionality is. 
Maybe you can have the best of both worlds while still maintaining the maxim. We never arrived to that conclusion. You know why? Because they were too focused on attacking my point and tearing my argument down. I was ambushed, my friends. And this is not Christian saying, oh, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, oh, woe is me. No, 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 no. No. That's not what the Christian is doing. What I'm telling you is, no matter how informed you think you are, no matter how intelligent you think you are, no matter how skilled you think you are, there are people who can out-argue you on technicalities, on semantics. There are people who can make you feel smaller about yourself on these things. But the truth is, those people themselves are the small ones. Those people themselves are acting impish. Those people themselves are the ones who will not be able to apply these ideas given their mechanisms. Those people themselves are the problem seekers. Those people themselves are the people you need to watch out for. Those people themselves. My friends. My friends. One of my followers, when I told them about this, they put out a quote. I'm going to read for you. This comes from Paula. Paula M. And I love... Pa- Let me just say to Paula, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. You have been a loyal follower. And I love all my loyal, loyal followers. You guys are helping a 20-year-old achieve his dreams. Thank you. God bless you. God, God bless you, Paula M. So this is a quote from Sun Tzu. If you know the enemy and know yourself... Hold on. <laughs> oh, man. Hold on. That's powerful right there. If you know episteme, apprehension, a lot of the debate between me and the soft was about apprehension. How do we know? During the, the, the non-aggression principle debate, one of the people said, I asked him, because I, I said, let's engage with this Socratically. Where do riots come from? Because he was contending that basically rights come from a sort of efficient way of doing things. He said that rights come from pre-established norms and argumentation. And that is how we know that non-aggression is good. Because it is the most efficient way to conduct argumentation. Now this statement has a few assumptions. Number one, it assumes that um, all argumentation needs to be conducted peacefully. There's some argumentation that can, that, that can be conducted um, viciously that, that can still reach a truth claim. It assumes that all advancements in society or all ethical considerations have to do with argumentation. That's not true. Argumentation is a window, but a house is not, is not the sum of a window. Just because you cannot see outside of the window does not mean you cannot, that there's not, there's not, not, there's not an outside world. I mean, there's, there's many logical problems with that statement. But one of the biggest, most absurd things is that he believed that rights basically come from us being able to efficiently talk to each other. So in a world in which we didn't talk to each other, would rights still exist? Well, according to him, rights exist solely in a social context, so they wouldn't exist, really. So if in a world in which we didn't talk to each other, how would we live morally and responsibly? How would we ensure that our human being is protected? How would we ensure all these things? So I asked him, like, dude, where do rights come from? He stopped. One of the first time he stopped, he's like, I don't know. I'm like, oh, so you're positing a rights theory without actually knowing where rights come from. Brilliant. Brilliant. 
sophistry. Anyway, so it's about knowing. If you don't know your arguments, you can't make coherent arguments. So you rely on word games to give the aesthetic appearance of intelligence, the aesthetic appearance of sounding smart, of sounding productive. So, Sun Tzu says, if you know the enemy, I know them now, and you know yourself, do you know what you believe? Do you know what you believe, my viewer? Do you know who you are? Do you know what that, as Solzhenitsyn would say, that stable nucleus which animates your being? Do you know what that is? So provided these two conditions are correct, if you know the enemy, and you know, you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. That's profound right there. You need not fear the result of a hundred battles. So the quantity of the conflict that you have, the quantity of the struggle you have, matters not. If you have the episteme, if you have that sort of objective understanding of the world and of yourself, if you, as Socrates said, examine thyself and you know thyself, no one can touch you. Why do you think Socrates was able to walk towards his demise so easily? Because he knew who the hell he was, and he knew truth would prevail. And historically, Athens eventually was a failed experiment, because Socrates knew truth would prevail. He knew it. So Sun Tzu is saying, don't, if you have those two preconditions satisfied, don't you fear a damn thing. Excuse my language. If you know yourself, but not the enemy. Oh, hold on. If you know yourself, but not the enemy. For every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. My problem is I knew who Christian Watson was. I didn't know what the, who the enemy was. I didn't even know they were the enemy. And look, I'm not saying these kids, these guys that are on my age are enemies or evil people. Look, they're not evil people. They're not bad people. They're just a bunch of guys who are bored by quarantine who decided to go beat up on me. And who have a, just terrible misunderstandings of philosophy. Sun Tzu says, if you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. Here's the catch. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. You shall succumb in every battle. Go to the battle with the armor, as I mentioned before, of enlightenment, of intellectual and epistemic humility. That will signify that you know yourself. Then proceed forth by analyzing your enemy, analyzing your opponent, analyzing their ideas. Brilliant stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, I didn't I'm not I didn't I'm not gonna get to Lindsey Graham today. I'm <laughs> sorry. This is but I, this has been on my heart, dude. And I'm positive there are folks out there who have dealt with self-doubt before that has been brought about by such instances. I'm positive there are folks out there who have. 
And I just want to try to encourage you guys, if you are going through that, if you ever have, that quote brightened my day up. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you don't you don't need to fear a, a single battle. You don't need to fear anything, buddies. Knowledge is not about who can sound the smartest. Knowledge is not about who can do the most. Knowledge is not about these things. Knowledge, my friends. It's about understanding the world. Knowledge is about being able to interact with the world in an honest way without the blinders of the cave, without the blinders of all these other things. Knowledge is not about how much lingo you know. Knowledge is not about how many people you can impress. Knowledge is not about owning people. Knowledge is not about all that kind of stuff. Deceit is about that kind of stuff. Vain, vain rhetoric is about that kind of stuff. The sophists that I dealt with were, were vain rhetoricians. Endeavoring in the dark, in the dark art of vain rhetoric. Knowledge is not about that kind of stuff, my friends. Knowledge is about standing righteously and truly. You know, Rosewood Lane, one of my favorite authors, she mentions a thing in her book, Discovery of Freedom, in which I'm getting it right now, in which she posits a problem that a lot of folks have in their thinking. This is it right here. And I'm going to find it here. Um, she says in a chapter called The Pagan Faith. And all pagan means for Lane is that there's a certain ignorance endemic to uh, a, a backwards understanding of uh, the world that is not true, right? So for Lang, at Lane, a pagan understanding of the world is not in terms of religious or religions, in terms of not understanding how, how things really are. She says, very few men have ever known that, 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 that men are free. Among the Earth's population now, few know that fact. And her thesis here is that living energy is different. It is creative, invariable. It changes, and it changes the conditions in which it acts. It is unpredictable because it never acts twice in precisely the same way. Everything has distinctions for Lane. And her idea is that so many people view themselves to be concerned, controlled by an authority. <clears throat> she says this on, on page 15. Every human being by his nature is free. He controls himself. But in the old world, men believe that some authority controls them. They cannot make their energy work by such belief because the belief is false. My friends, I was dealing with an old world mentality just then. All of us are free epistemically and otherwise, ontologically and otherwise. But when you're so concerned about tearing people down, you're bound to the authority of pretension. That authority guides your actions. Any insight you have, any insight you make that labors under that authority is valid and impotent. It can create nothing and it can destroy everything. These TikTok debaters, some of these YouTube debaters are laboring under false authorities. Aristotle will call them capacities. I like to call them authorities. 
So we have to understand something, my friends. It's not always about what you know. It's about what you're driven by. If you're driven by truth, if you're driven by self-knowledge, if you're driven by specific humility, then I promise you, you will always win. If you're driven by false authorities and misunderstandings of certain subjects and of your human being, and if you're driven by a bloodlust to see your intellectual opponents felled in debate, not only will you never win, you were never in the race to begin with. <laughs> Think on it. My friends, I love you to death. Regardless of where you're listening to us at on Pepper Ravens, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, I love you so much. If you want to support this pro- production, uh, please subscribe on all those platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. My channel is Christian Watson. My my PayPal is officialcwatson.gmail.com if you want to donate to anything to my channel. If you came from this episode and you liked it, tell me on social media. Tell me on Twitter at Official C. Watson. Tell me on YouTube, wherever. If you like this episode, let me know, okay, guys? But as always, look, stay blessed, stay inspired. Don't let people get you down. And most importantly, my friends, stay pensive. I love you. Bye-bye.